Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Absolutely. Good morning, everybody. Hey, we're really glad you're here. As a church community, we believe the, the Bible teaches three things about the reality of evil in our world. The first is that God is good, and so we praise. Second is that evil is actually evil. It's not good dressed up as evil. It's actually horrible. And surrendering to God doesn't mean that we pretend like evil is somehow good. Evil is evil, and so we lament. And that's what we were doing. And we also believe that God is so genius at pulling good from evil that sometimes we think he needed the evil to do the good, but that's never the case. And so we see him as good, we praise, we see evil as evil, we lament, and we see God bringing good from evil, so we hope. And that's the way we position ourselves in the world. And so moments of lament, we don't, we're never told how to do this. The American church, at least in my experience, doesn't know how to lament. We just know that everything needs to happen or end with a pretty red bow and a cliche and maybe a casserole, if you're lucky. And, and I love the casseroles. I'm not going to deny that, but I'm just saying there's a time and a place for the casserole. And it is on Potluck Sunday, which we need to start instituting. But anyway, I digress. If you're new to our community, welcome. Uh, again, my name is Mike. We're delighted that you're here. If you want to find out more about us, you can go journeytn.com. There are a couple of monthly practices that we engage in that you need to know about. One, something called Room in the End. In, not end. Room in the Inn. And that is where we host, we open up our building, we host and serve uh, folks who are disadvantaged um, uh, from our community who do not have secure housing. And so we uh, prepare a meal, serve a meal, sit and talk, change the room into a place where uh, people can sleep and enjoy just the warmth of, um, of a building that's heated and so all of those things. So that comes, Susie, that's the first Monday I think of every month. Am I right? Second Monday? Okay, don't listen to anything I said two sentences ago, from two sentences ago to now. The other thing I want to let you know about is something called the table. The table is the foundational, formational practice of our community, and it's where folks open up their homes to share a meal with people who don't all know each other. And it's a, it's a, a smaller group. It's not a small group. It's not a Bible study. It's literally talking around a table. That's, that's all that it is. And that comes up the first Sunday of every month. Am I right, Kevin? That's right. One for two today. So, on the 20th, like I said, on the 20th of February. Um, anyway, all that is to say, you are more than welcome. We have about 100 people signed up so far. Uh, the next one is coming up next week, I believe, a week from today. So please feel free to sign up also. And lastly, if you are new to our community, a couple things you need to know about this time. First of all, we love baby sounds. So if you have an infant in here, do not feel like 
Yeah, do not feel like you need to go anywhere. We love, we love those sounds. Second thing is we love questions, not because we give great answers, but because we think the life of faith includes wrestling with the text. And so there will be a text line. We'll do some Q&A at the end of this thing. We think religious uh, leadership (laughs) should be open to questioning. And uh, so we're just huge fans of conversation. The last thing you need to know about us is that we spend the last part of our service responding through uh, the different stations that I will explain as we get there. All right. And then uh, Kevin, the very able carrier of furniture, also leads a series of conversations um, with a whole room full of people around the stuff that we talk about, and that happens in the lounge. All right, today we're continuing our conversation in the book of Mark. If you have a Bible, let's go to Mark chapter 4. Up until this point, we've met Jesus. Mark tells us Jesus is the Son of God. The Father at Jesus' baptism tells us that Jesus is the Son of God. We find all these demons shouting that Jesus is the Son of God. But as for everybody else, there's a great deal of confusion. And so the first part of the book of Mark is trying to answer who is Jesus. And in one sense, the answer is obvious because there are these huge crowds that are flocking around him, acclaiming him as an exorcist and a miracle worker and a healer. Uh, But in another sense, this is the first hint we get that there's something else happening in uh, the life of Jesus that's a bit more mysterious and not as obvious. So we're going to look at a parable. If you're a, a regular kind of church person, you've heard this parable before. But I don't think it's functioning the way that we have normally been taught that, that it functions. Uh, I have a friend of mine named Tim Gombas who wrote a commentary on the book of Mark and totally reshaped my view of this parable. Mark chapter 4, we will start in verse 1. Mark 4, here it is. Again, how are you guys doing? Okay, great. Just checking. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large, he got into a boat and sat uh, in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables and in his teaching said, listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed as he was scattering the seed. Some fell along the hardened path and birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plant so that they did not bear grain. So other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, 60, some hundred times. And then Jesus says his very famous end of parable statement, whoever has ears, let him hear. When he was alone, the 12 gathered around him and asked him, what are you talking about? That's Mike Erie's translation. He told them. Now this is very important. The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the what? Outside, everything is said in parables so that they may ever perceive, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, they ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. It's a quote from Isaiah. 
Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. So the seed represents the word. Some people who are like the seed along the path where the word was sown, as soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke it, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Some 30, 60, some 100 times what was sown. And because we're all farmers, this, the, all of this imagery totally makes sense, correct? And it's one of the, it's in each of the Gospels except John, this is the foundational parable to understand all the other parables. That's why he says, if you don't understand this one, you're going to miss all the rest. Now, when I've taught this parable, and when I was taught this parable, I was taught that it meant, listen guys, Jesus is spreading the gospel, and some hearts will have you know, Satan take the gospel message away from them. Some people are super shallow and they'll wilt when there's trouble. You know, some will like be, uh, be more focused on money or the things of this world, but there are other soils that are actually really fruitful, so be that soil. Right? That's how I've always heard this described. The problem is that there's not one exhortation in here to be good soil. Jesus isn't prescribing something. He's describing what's going to happen in the rest of the book. And the hinge that the parable rests on is this statement from Isaiah. And so I want to look at that. Go back to uh, 4.12, if you would. So that, so why does Jesus talk in parables? So that they might ever be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, anytime you read something like this, and you're like, oh, I don't understand what that means. Shocking. Let's go back into the Old Testament and read it in context right? Jesus isn't pulling stuff out of thin air, and Jesus isn't being super mean, like, hey, I don't want people to understand who I am. This is a very specific reference to Isaiah 6. Now, if you would, go ahead and put up Isaiah 6. This is after Isaiah has this vision of God on his throne. Um, God, I'm a man of unclean lips. An angel comes and touches his lips to make him clean, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And all the Bible Sunday school people know the answer. Here am I, send me. And it sounds like such an epic commission, right? I've just encountered the holy God of the universe and he's going to send me and it's going to be awesome. But then the next verse, God says to Isaiah, go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Isaiah said, well, how long should I do this, Lord? And God answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitants, 
till the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. Now, in context, in Isaiah chapter five, we read that the people are going to be exiled because of their lack of understanding. What Isaiah's job is, is to reveal the hardness of the hearts of Israel, who will hear the words of judgment and promise of God, but not understand them, interpret them, or act on them. Does that make sense? Isaiah's preaching reveals the hardness of heart. It doesn't cause the hardness of heart. So Jesus is pulling on that strain of biblical teaching to say, parables have the same function. They reveal what's already in the heart. Those who are on the inside will perceive and understand, and those who are on the outside will hear and see, but they won't really perceive what's happening. Are you with me so far? Now, I know this raises some other questions. Perhaps we'll get to those. But what I need you to understand is that Jesus identifies the disciples as insiders. I'm giving you the secrets of the kingdom, and I'm going to explain the parable to you. And he identifies other people as outsiders. And the outsiders, we think, are the people who aren't the disciples, all of these crowds that are sort of milling about. And what Jesus is about to do is to flip that whole thing on its head, where the insider, the disciples, are the ones who don't see and perceive and hear and understand. And the misfits, the sinners, the marginalized, the untouchable, those are the people who see and hear and perceive and understand. So the soil parable is about how the rest of the book is going to play out. That the disciples are the hard soil, the disciples are the soil that's rocky, the disciples are the soil that's shallow and quickly falls away. But it's the outsiders who turn out to be the insiders in Mark's gospel. Now, if you don't buy this or understand it just yet, that's just fine. That's the preview of where we're headed. The whole parable is a parable about perception. Not just hearing the words, but understanding them, right? Even Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear. So how many of the people in the crowd had ears, you think? Yeah. So there's a difference between hearing and hearing. Married couples, can you vouch for that? Right? There's a difference between seeing and perceiving. So lots of people are seeing Jesus, the miracle worker, but there aren't many that are perceiving. And so you think, okay, these disciples, these are the guys that get it, right? They left their nets earlier in the, in the book. They've been commissioned. They've cast out demons and performed miracles. Man, these are the insiders. Jesus even names them that. But the rest of this section, from this part in chapter 4 to the middle of chapter 8, is a record of all the ways the disciples miss it and outsiders get it. And, and we know this because in chapter 8, Jesus now uses that kind of perception language against the disciples. So this forms, look at me, you're going to learn a Bible word. This forms an inclusio. It's where Mark plants two similar quotes 
around a section of material, and those two quotes explain the material in the middle. It's a sandwich. And the idea is, the first bracket is the quote from Isaiah. The second bracket is a quote from Jeremiah. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not what? Or are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes? He's saying this to the disciples. Do you have eyes that fail to what? And ears that fail to what? And don't you remember? This section, from the middle of four to the middle of eight, bracketed by these two quotes, one was applied to the outsiders, where the disciples were the insiders. This one is applied to the disciples who turn out to be the outsiders because they're missing it. Are you with me a little bit? Perfect. I'm shocked. Now, I want to just highlight several verses in this section where the disciples fail to perceive. All right, fire up the verses. Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have how much faith? No faith. Come on, guys. Next. Mark 6. Because the disciples all saw him and were terrified, immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be what? Right. Then, they cl- then he climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not what? Understood about the feedings that we're going to look at next week. Their hearts were next. You never want to hear this from Jesus. Are you so, yeah, I've heard that in my quiet times for years. (laughs) And then Jesus goes on to redefine clean and unclean, right? And then in Mark 8, that the section, the second part of the sandwich, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you not see or understand? Are your hearts not hardened, right? I mean, so the, the idea is that the disciples who are the insiders here become progressively dull in their senses and perception. In fact, in this section, Greek nerds, there is not one verb of seeing or hearing ever applied to the disciples. Instead, the verbs of perception are applied to people like this. Next. This is the demoniac. When he what? He ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Next. When she, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she, I, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Cool. Next. He took her by the hand. He took, Jesus took her by the hand and what to her? Which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And what does she do? Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12, it was fine. Right, she was dead, now she's not. No big worries, it's just a Tuesday. (laughs) Next. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as a woman, what? (coughs) about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and did what? Fell at his feet. Is there one more? I don't remember. 
Some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. So they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's what? And then he spit, which is horrible in the first century, and touched the man's gross. But why is that? See, these aren't just random stories that Mark's like, oh yeah, yeah, and I remember that, and we'll stick that here. This is, he's interweaving narratives where the disciples fail to perceive and where the outsiders see and perceive. Are you with me on this? And at this, the man's ears were opened. Yes, 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 yes. Now, one of the things that, um, so, okay, any questions so far? Because I want to introduce an entirely new block of material. Great. Next block. Let's look at the soils, because what I want to argue is that the soils represent the disciples in the narrative. All right, so 10 minutes of this, and then we'll start talking about why this matters. Give me verse 13. We get a hint that the disciples are going to not perceive well when Jesus says to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? We're already getting a hint, even after he's called them insiders. We're already getting a hint that they're going to fail to perceive what Jesus is about. Then Jesus interprets the parable of the farmer scattering seed. He says, the farmer sows the what? The word. Now, word is this great preacher word. I'm going to share a word. Jesus preached a word. That's a really ambiguous word for us. Because we read into that, whatever it is, we come at the text with, from our previous understanding. And so the word is often, well, that's just the gospel of forgiveness of sins, but it's not. Jesus is preaching the kingdom. And the word about the kingdom, and here you're going to have to trust me till you get there, but the word about the kingdom isn't just that the kingdom of God is here, but that the kingdom of God is cross-shaped. The, that Jesus is going to suffer. He's going to go to the capital of his nation and suffer and die. And there's a whole array of forces against him doing that. So the preaching of the word, as we'll see looking back, is the preaching of a cross-shaped kingdom and a cross-shaped king and the invitation to be cross-shaped disciples. And we'll talk about exactly what cross-shaped means later on, but the idea is that Jesus, when he's doing miracles and when he's teaching these incredible truths, the crowds are gathering like crazy. But when Jesus begins to clarify that the word means he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the Gentiles, then the crowds and even the disciples turn against him. So the farmer that sows the word, the word here is the cross-shaped nature of the kingdom. And again, for justification, we'll see this in a couple of weeks. Now, next sentence. Let's talk about the first soil. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Now, I always heard this as, um, you know, you're sitting next to someone on an airplane. As always, they ask, how can I accept Jesus and give my life to him? And you begin to tell them the story 
of Jesus, and then all of a sudden there's turbulence, and they get distracted, and the, the, they, they never got to hear or got to understand what it was. Or the missionaries on her way to some tribe, you know, in Africa, and she gets a flat tire, and the word was snatched from them. I always thought that's what that meant. But actually, and again, I mean, all of this is much clearer in the original language. Um, <laughs> Satan is only referenced a couple of times in the book. So we, we meet Satan in chapter 1, where he tempts Jesus. And then Jesus mentions Satan snatching the word. And then we talk about Satan falling like lightning. But then there's this encounter with Peter. Go ahead and put that up. And this is very famous for you uh, Sunday school folks. But what about you? Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter correctly says what? You're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone, which is always interesting. But why? Why would he warn them not to tell anyone? He began to teach them that he, the Son of Man, must suffer and be rejected by the leadership of Israel, and he must be killed and after three days rise again. Next. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter, God bless him, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me what? Now, Mark doesn't tell us anything about the temptations of Satan in the wilderness. We hear that from Matthew and Luke. In Mark's gospel, this is the only insight we get into how Satan was tempting Jesus. And what's the temptation? To skip the cross, correct? Right, because that's what Peter wants. What are you talking about, Jesus? The Messiah isn't supposed to suffer. The Messiah is to come and conquer, to dominate, to vindicate Israel, to kick the Romans out. What are you talking about suffering and dying? I know all the good Sunday school people in the room know this already. But in Mark's gospel, that's what it looks like when Satan snatches the word. Is when the disciples miss the cross-orientation of the work of Jesus. That's what it looks like. This is the only instance where Satan snatches the word we have in the book. Where Peter acknowledges that Jesus is Messiah, and then that is immediately corrupted by Peter's nationalistic and militaristic understanding of what a Messiah should be. Are you with me? You don't have to buy this, but I think the, the work it does in Mark is far more powerful than just say, yeah, some people aren't going to buy it, and some people are. No, 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 the, all of this perception is what is at issue here. And even when Peter perceives rightly, he doesn't. And Satan snatches the word. That's why Jesus rebukes him so strongly. He recognizes the, the, the idea that Jesus shouldn't suffer as the satanic lie. So Satan snatches the word whenever the cross-shaped gospel gets corrupted into some other thing. Let's talk about the second soil. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they only last a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly what? Oh, that's interesting. Who does that in Mark's gospel? Fire it up. 
You will all fall away, Jesus told his disciples. And the same words used. I will strike, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, obviously Old Testament quote. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. So who are the ones that fall away? The disciples do. And, and when do they fall away? The night of his arrest. When trouble or persecution come because of the word. So, next. Peter, of course, even if all fall away, I won't. Well, false. <laughs> next. God bless you. Later on, Jesus is, is feeling the full weight of what's about to happen. He returns to his disciples and found them what? Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Now, what's the temptation? What's the temptation? Well, sleep, but that's a metaphor. To abandon Jesus, to fall away, because Jesus knows he's about to be arrested. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Next. Am I leading, so a crowd comes to arrest Jesus. Am I leading a rebellion that you come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts. You did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone what? Yeah, and fled. So who falls away in Mark? Yeah, so who gets the seed snatched by Satan? Peter, who falls away? The disciples. Oh, third soil. I wonder who the answer to this question is going to be. So others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the anxieties of this age, which make the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things attractive, they come in. Now, they don't pull away. They come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Hmm. I wonder, what, I wonder how this happens. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus has just announced he's going to the cross to die. What do you want me to do for you? Well, can we sit at your right and the other at your left when you come in glory? That's what it looks like when the word is choked. Or, another instance, this is the most famous one, then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. And then the last soil. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Who produces a crop in the Gospel of Mark? The demon-possessed, the diseased, the unclean, the broken, the outcast. So when Jesus introduces the idea that some will be perceiving but not perceiving, they'll see but not understand. And then he closes that section with saying to the disciples, how is it that you can see and not perceive? How is it that you can hear and not understand? That's the story that unfolds. Outsider characters are the ones responding and producing this massive amount of fruit. And the disciples 
are the ones who fall away. See, I always thought the parable was about all those people out there who don't hear Jesus, and we're the good ones because we say yes. I always thought the assumption of the parable was, well, I'm the good soil, right? Because here I am. And it's just the reverse. It's for all of us assured that we're good soil. In our own minds, at least. It challenges the many ways in which the word of the cross-shaped kingdom gets obscured, choked, or stolen away. Are you with me? I mean, is there not one of those temptations that the American church hasn't said yes to? When Satan snatches the word, it obscures the cross-shaped character of the kingdom. Well, how cross-shaped is American Christianity? I mean, not at all. The cross is what gets me to heaven. But in Mark, and in the rest of Jesus' teaching, the cross is an entire way of life. It's an orientation to the world. It's the willingness to abandon comfort and self-preservation in order to be poured out for the sake of others. But we're in a world of self-promotion and and rights assertion, and all of that is antithetical to the word of the cross. All of it. And so there's a sense in which, Isaac, I know you're sleepy, buddy. Isaac, Isaac, we're right here. You're not tired? Isaac, your body says otherwise. It's all right. I mean, this, this is thick stuff, and, and, it, and it's boring. It's a little, he says a little. He says a little. That's so right. You speak for all of us. What's that? Your name? Oh, nice. Hallowed be my name? Okay, perfect. Well, yeah, we'll do it at the end. Perfect. Isaac's back. Now, ladies and gentlemen, thank you, my man. Second soil, I'm just making sure I got it all. Yep, so <laughs> how cross-shaped is the American church? We're power-hungry, we're power-seeking, we're, uh, we are fans of coercion, manipulation, marginalization, exclusion. We think crowds are good things. We're in the Gospel of Mark. They're hindrances to the cross-shaped gospel. We have a whole culture of celebrity and self-promotion. And we all know this, and we all tolerate it and call it Christian because we don't want to be divisive. Okay. I'm not going to call it wrong. Jesus is going to call it wrong. I mean, it's so abundantly clear what American Christianity, how it presents itself is the complete and inverted opposite. And you know what? Here's what's great. Let's not just talk about American Christianity. Let's talk about me. I do this. I was promised a gospel where everyone gets healed, where Jesus fills the hole in your heart. He doesn't make it worse. Where Jesus answers my prayers where Jesus has a great and glorious plan for my life. 
And instead, what I got is a bunch of wrestling in agony. Well, why did this happen? And why does this happen? Why don't you answer that? Instead, I got dark nights of the soul. And I more acutely feel the evil of the world, knowing there's a good God that could stop it. I mean, when we advertise for Christianity, who do we put up? Well, we put up our celebrities. And how awesome is Tim Tebow? He's a Christian, right? And he is, and he's awesome. I saw him once from a distance. <laughs> Felt like Zacchaeus. <laughs> but who would Jesus show off? The woman that had seven demons cast out of her? The leper? I mean, I'm ranting. But... I hate what I see in my heart because I see this. And I hate what I see in the church because I love the church and I see this. And we think the issue is those pagans out there. And the Gospel of Mark is written to the pagans in here. Me being chief of sinners. Second soil, falling away because of fear. <laughs> How... How awesome have we been in uh, facing fear with faith and hope? Not even remotely, right? We face fear. They're coming for us. That's the refrain. They're coming for us, and so we have to grasp for power. We have to define them as enemy. All the things Jesus said not to do, we do in the name of being afraid. We are totally captured by the anxieties of this age. And in fact, we market them in order to present Jesus as the answer. And yet, in our marketing, we belie the fact that they hold us captive too. Right? Trouble and persecution, this is not someone unfriending you in Facebook. Or having an awkward Thanksgiving Day conversation, right? Trouble and persecution isn't when we're jerks and people don't like us. Trouble and persecution is when you live and want to live a cross-shaped life and there are other Christians who are after you, declaring you to be heretics or outsiders because you don't play the nationalistic games or the militaristic games or the partisan games that everyone else plays in the name of Jesus. And that brings up the third soil, and this is the American soil. The deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and they choke the word. <sighs> I mean, are we preaching? And this is me. I, don't, I, I have no judgment on you. I don't know you. You're probably better than I am because I'm the only dark-hearted person I know here besides Kevin. And if you know Kevin, you know that's utterly not true. No. Just don't ride with him in traffic. That's my, only, that's my only recommendation. You will see that man lose his salvation and gain his salvation multiple cycles. And that's fine. <laughs> All right, enough of me ranting. What do you want to talk about? Yes, sir. 
Hold on a second. Kevin. I know, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, Mike, yeah, Mike does the, both mics, actually. Mike and Mike using the mic. Very exactly. challenging. I stuck it out to the end to understand, and I feel like I really got something great of it. I do have one, one thing I'm struggling with personally. Yeah. With all of this, where does us preaching the gospel come into play? So great. Well, let's read the rest of Mark and find out. No, no, I, I, I know that's a flippant answer, but <laughs> I think we're going to all be surprised at the lack of commands to go evangelize the world. We're going to be very surprised by the, the abundance of commands in the New Testament to be the faithful church. Now, I'm all for sharing the faith, but the ways that we do it often <laughs> um, represent the bad soils that we come from. And so um, I'm, I'd be fine if we just spent the next 10 years cleaning up our own mess. And in so doing, I think, and producing communities that actually live a counter life, like who are genuinely hopeful in the face of fear, who genuinely have no other agenda attached to Jesus other than being poured out for the sake of the world. See, I think that's the most compelling witness. And I think that's Paul's vision for what evangelism looks like, are communities who do the dirty work that no one else does in culture. And who have a place to call out the powerful because their powerful aren't, you know, falling every other day. You know what I mean? Like, our leadership is healthy. Our leadership isn't toxic. Our leadership is cross-shaped, so we can speak truth to power. And I just think we forfeited so much of that because of what we've tolerated in the name of Jesus following. Mike, Great. Yeah. clarify the difference between prop proclaiming propositional truth yeah. versus the idea of a cross-shaped life. Oh, we, I mean, if you were here last week, the, thank you, Kevin. That's a, just a softball. What we're going to see in Mark <laughs> is that the cross doesn't secure our salvation. The cross is an invitation to a way of living. Now, that cross is where Jesus defeated the powers. He judged the uh, darkness of this present age, and he launches the new creation. All of that is true. And Jesus' work on the cross does secure forgiveness of sins for those in him. But we think that's where the story stops. And so we have something else called discipleship or sanctification. And that's just not how the New Testament envisions, envisions Jesus living. Paul simply says it. Your attitude should be the same. Your church attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider his godhood to be used for his own advantage, but rather he self-expended in pouring himself out and he took the form of, a, of the most humble of humble, a servant, a human, but not just any human, a human who died a shameful and humiliating death. That's what your attitude should be like towards each other. That's cross-shaped life, right? So instead of running around, and this is what I do, running around going, okay, where do I fit and are, are my rights being protected and, and, I, and fine, 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 fine. But if that's my preeminent occupation that is totally at odds 
with what Jesus is calling his church into, which is where are the points in church or in, in the world where there is the most darkness and the church comes rushing in with love and service? You know what I mean? Because if, if my whole life is oriented around my security, comfort, and privilege, and I don't mean privilege in the woke sense. I, come on, guys. That's all dumb. I mean, I am privileged, right? The church in China is not privileged like I'm privileged. I, I know, see, the problem is so much of this can be interpreted politically, and I hate that. This isn't political. This is the work of Jesus. And the fact that we see it through the political lens instead of through the Jesus lens shows us that we've been discipled in the exact wrong direction. No matter what your political persuasion is, and I'm guilty of this. Okay, I don't know what I was talking about, but let's go to something else. Uh, it's, it's 10, so a couple more. Tops, depending on how good this one is, this young man yeah, we'll usually asks the good ones. Okay. Uh, I texted it in, but I just want to read it real quick. I want to talk about hard hearts for a second. Is oh, a boy. Idea? Um Here so we go. It's kind of been my understanding. I'm not educated on it, but God can give someone a hard heart, or you can bring a hard heart to that relationship. Um, the disciples are, like, really early in the game, like, and they're said, hey, they have hard hearts. Like, yeah. how did they get them? How does it... Yeah. How do they get rid of them? You know, like, oh. like, like you know, how does this, how does this work? Oh, uh, that's so good. That's good so good. All right. Let's talk about hard hearts for a second. And again, the answers aren't great. The questions are fantastic. All right? In the Bible, a hard heart is a failure to perceive, a dulling of the senses. You see and hear, but don't perceive or understand. There's this interplay in Exodus between God and Pharaoh that often gets brought into this conversation where didn't God harden Pharaoh's heart? If you study the narrative closely, I think, I think it works out this way. I mean, it was a while ago when I looked at this, but I think it's 10 times Pharaoh hardens his own heart and 10 times that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And the idea isn't that God's up there arbitrarily saying, okay, you, you get a hard heart. Because I don't like you, Kenji. That's not the idea. So, no, that is not true at all. That's not the idea. The idea is that hard, the hardening of the heart becomes a self-reinforcing cycle where God gives us over to that. So what I, I don't think the Bible is presenting is a God who sits up there and determines who's going to heaven and who's going to hell on the basis of whatever basis. But I think the invitation is, Israel had a hard heart at once, and that wasn't God's doing. The disciples had hard hearts, that wasn't Jesus' doing. I think that what happens in the work of God is that hearts are exposed, and you can actually see what's happening. And the more that you, the more you're unwilling to perceive and respond, the harder your heart gets. You know what I mean? So you, like, you have those points in your marriage where there's this little voice, and I'm sorry I use marriage examples, but it is like so true in my marriage. There, there's points where you're like, hey, I should probably ask for forgiveness here and say I'm sorry. And then there's other thing that's like, no, nah, you need to be right here. She needs to know how wrong she is. <laughs> right. And, and the more I say yes to that, right, the, the softer that other voice gets. 
And so one of the things that is wrong with us when we're sleepwalking through American life is that we're just not being aware of how we're cemented in certain directions by just simply living on autopilot, you know? So the church is invited into spiritual disciplines that interrupt the autopilot and make us aware and wake us up to the move of God around us. Man, what a great question. And there's so much more to say, man. What a great question. All right. Okay, one more. Last one. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, I thought the little, I thought the little yeah, sweet was, girl was going to I'm gonna just going to interpret what she Perfect. Um, <laughs> so, you know, the lens of seeing disciples as ones that are struggling to get this stuff. Yeah. I, you know, I want to I then apply it to other parables. And so I'm going out of Mark, and so I maybe just be like, confusing myself. How great is that accent, by the way? But <laughs> How many of you commented on the accent immediately when you heard it? You're like, yes, yeah, this, that this man thing, should please, be preaching. Please listen to my words and not just my accent. <laughs> it's like getting through. To, <laughs> I know, but we're intoxicated like, with your yeah. accent. We can't help it. We're Americans. We but have nothing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, my, my question is related to Matthew 22 and the parable of the wedding. You know, the people that are invited, they don't come. And so the king's like, go and invite everyone else. Yeah. But then there's this guy who's not dressed yeah. properly. Yeah. And he goes, get out of there. Yeah. Like, he, he gets kicked out. And so yes. I'm like, I, I feel like that guy sometimes, or I'm, I'm not quite dressed. And so yeah. I'm trying to see the lens of, okay, if these guys aren't getting it, yeah. but yeah. these guys are, then yeah. who is this extra person that is not dressed, that is right. not ready to? Oh, so good. Okay. Man, so great, and we can't do any justice to that question. But here, just a couple of quick thoughts. First of all, you're asking the right questions when you approach a parable that way. The parables aren't written to 21st century Christians wondering if they're saved. The parables are about Israel and Israel's refusal to be ready. And the one who's dressed well at the banquet is, uh, or dressed inappropriately, was the one who expected to be there, but actually had the hardness of heart. And so what, what Mark's doing and what Jesus are doing, and now the, the parables have relevance and resonance for us, but the worst thing you can do with a parable is say, hey, what does this mean for me? Because it was about Israel first, and it was to Israel, about Israel, and for Israel first. Then... There's, and that comes in a whole string of parables that's be ready for God's coming. So Jesus is a warning them of God's impending visitation, right? And, um, and so is there a similar, like, live awake kind of invitation for us? You bet. But I find that the, the, the parables often leave a part of it unexplained so that we are invited to find ourselves in the story. And the fact that you would go, hey, I know this is about Israel, but I don't ever want to be the guy that shows up and gets kicked out. You're kind of already guaranteeing. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Feels like the Oscars right there. You know, thinking my agent, and then there's the hook comes out. So here's what we're going to do. I mean, so, you guys are amazing. 
What we want to do is, and, and all of this builds, what we're going to do is inhabit certain spiritual disciplines. Yep. That form us into cross-shaped people. We care and lament, and so there are these places where you can write down prayer requests. And the prayer requests we get are unbelievable, and we pray over them, and we sit in them, and they affect so many decisions that we make. Secondly, we invite everyone to the table. And communion isn't, hey, I've got to get cleaned up first. Communion is, God, thank you for the gift, and now I want to volunteer to, in a small way, echo that gift to others. I want to be the kind of person that loves first, serves first, acts first, sacrifices first. So it's a job description as well as a gift. And then we sing, not just because that's what churches do, but to kind of refresh our imaginations, to have our lips sing things and train our lips to like not curse not in the swear word, but like curse others or demonize others. We're like, we're training our lips to be used for fresh water instead of salt water to use the image of James. So all of this stuff matters and it's intentional in that we want to be formed in a Jesus-like direction. So band, come on up. The stage is clear from all obstruction. Let me pray for us as we participate together. Lord, thank you. I and we are just so very grateful that you're far more beautiful than we've envisioned and that the life you invite us into is far more compelling. And God, I I pray deeply for me and this community that your spirit and that your word would do the work in our community to shape us into Jesus-like people. And God, show us where it is we need to rethink. Show it is where we need to turn around. Show, show us where it is that we can't just sit smug in our self-righteousness, but instead we want to inhabit humility and gratitude and desperation for the work you're doing in the world. We love you and we bless you in the name of our Christ. Amen.